Hi entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, welcome back to the Long Game Podcast. In today's episode, we have Patrick Yip, co-founder of Intudo Ventures, an Indonesia-only VC fund. Prior to co-founding Intudo Ventures, Patrick was the managing director of Gemala Sarana Wiyata, an Indonesian-based private equity investment firm that acted as the local partner for Goldman Sachs Investment Partners. Before that, he has also spent his time in CP Prima, GE Capital and investment banks globally. In this episode, we will explore Indonesia's overall startup ecosystem, the Indonesian government's role in catalyzing a VC ecosystem, and how Malaysia and Indonesia can work together to create a two-way partnership which will enable startups to expand across the two nations. But before we dive into the discussion with Patrick, let's look ahead at the outlook for Q2 2023 with our colleague Iman. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. Hi, I'm Iman. I'm an analyst of Penjana Capital. Today, we'll be looking ahead to quarter 2, 2023 and discussing what we can expect from the venture capital market. Globally, we expect VC returns and valuations to continue to reconcile with the public markets in the next quarter amid prolonged turbulence in the macroeconomic environment. VC fund managers will likely keep a watchful eye on the performance of their existing funds and withhold larger commitments until market conditions stabilize. Consequently, this presents a liquidity crunch for startups looking to raise equity rounds amid the ongoing macroeconomic headwinds. Many companies that raised two years ago when the market was flush with capital will likely run out of money by the second half of 2023. Given this situation, startups are now in a full-on race to reach profitability. This is especially true for mature startups sitting at the growth stage. Those that are unable to become profitable will have to return to the market. For the past several years, many startups and dear investors prioritize a growth-at-all-cost mindset over the constant need for liquidity. This made sense given the recent boom in capital availability in the market. However, as startups went on a cash burn spree with an expectation to raise funds sooner rather than later, this has led many startups towards difficulties in making payroll and brings a renewed focus on liquidity. In Malaysia, we are happy to share that the VC investments are still very much active, especially coming from government-linked investment companies, otherwise known as GLICs, looking to invest in the VC asset class. We expect VC fund managers to continue raising funds whilst deploying existing funds in the next quarter. We can expect deal flow to remain robust with a healthy pipeline. Among the startups that have raised funds recently are Dana Penjana National DPN Investees, Sourcebase, who had raised 31.5 million US dollars in its Series B funding round, making it the largest Series B raise by a Malaysian startup. And K Concierge, who had recently raised funds from the newly established Gobi Dana Impact Ventures Fund. That's all from me, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Up next, it would be the interview with Patrick Yip. Before we jump right into the interview with Patrick Yip, here's a fun fact. Venture capital can play a key role in helping startups expand into new markets and overcome cross-border challenges. Expanding a startup into a new market, particularly in a different country or region, can be a complex and risky process. 
Startups often face challenges such as unfamiliar regulatory environment, cultural differences, and language barriers. Venture capital firms can provide not only financial resources, but also valuable expertise, networks, and resources to help startups navigate these challenges. One study found that startups that received venture capital funding were more likely to expand internationally than those that did not. The study also found that venture-backed startups were more successful in expanding into new markets and generating revenue from those markets. Venture capitalists can help startups with cross-border expansion by providing introductions to potential partners, customers, and investors in the target market. They can also provide guidance on navigating regulatory requirements and cultural differences, as well as access to local resources such as office space, legal, and accounting services, and recruitment networks. Overall, venture capital can be a powerful tool for startups seeking to expand into new markets, particularly across borders, by providing not just capital, but also expertise and resources. Venture capitalists can help startups overcome the challenges of cross-border expansion and increase their chances of success. So welcome to another episode of the Long Game Podcast by Penjana Capital. Sharul uh, here and I'm very pleased to host my dear friend Patrick Yip from uh, Intudo Ventures. So let's just uh, jump straight into it. Um, first of all, Patrick, I'll just give a bit of a background on, on the, the talking points of today. Sure. And then we will um, start going into the, to the nitty-gritty and the questions. So um, the first talking point is on the growth and development of the Indonesian startup ecosystem. So just a bit of background, due to Indonesia's large population and unexplored potential, Indonesia is known as the country of unicorns, having given birth to nine of them and one decacorn. Government laws, example, uh, minimum investment requirements and startup infrastructure um, play a vital part in the ecosystem in Indonesia uh, in its growth and development. So entities can, that can give financing and assistance, uh, VCs like Kajora and, and Intudo, um, to take a chance on these businesses are very crucial enablers in the ecosystem. Uh, they may assist to cement company strategies to ensure that they are sustainable and scalable, as well as provide access to critical contacts that they may not otherwise have. So Indonesia is very lucky to have a government. Um, from, from our side, we can see it's truly supportive for startups. Um, government has sponsored programs such as the Thousand Startups Movement, which gives possibilities for pilot testing and proof of concept, extending uh, beyond mere ideation. Uh, it also enables networking, interacting with other founders, angels, and institutions, which may aid in exposure and reputation, both of which are vital for due diligence. Then there are the regulators, uh, such as OJK, that regulate non-payment financial services in order to establish a safe environment, such as an 85% foreign ownership limit, a prohibition on any on-balance sheet lending, and a loan ceiling of around 141,000 USD. As a result of the restriction, over 1,000 illegal P2P users have already been prevented from engaging in a fraudulent uh, behavior. So, you know, in this context, Patrick, I guess the first uh, question would be, um, from Malaysia's context, Malaysia's VC ecosystem is mostly driven by the government with a lack of private participants which is unsustainable, obviously. So in 2021, 73% of VC funding came from the Malaysian government. Do you see this disparity in Indonesia? Who are the drivers of the VC ecosystem in Indonesia? What is the uniqueness of the Indonesian startup ecosystem as compared to its ASEAN peers? 
Wow. No, thanks, Cheryl. Yeah, we, we start up with a bang right out the gate. Um, no, I, look, I, I think with Indonesia, the, the, the capital base um, is a little bit more balanced uh, compared to, say, Malaysia, like you said, with more sort of uh, government-backed uh, funds, right? So I think um, both in the private and the public sector, there's been very active participants, whether it's, um, you know, say, on the government side with a lot of CVCs uh, being born uh, in the past sort of decade or so. You've got CVCs of telecommunications company, you've got CVCs of banks, uh, state-owned banks in Indonesia. They've been very active in the ecosystem, as well as I think on the private side, um, you know, whether it's families uh, that are, you know, creating family offices or investment arms of their larger conglomerate, right? So I think both private and public have played a huge role um, in funding a lot of the startups, uh, at least in the past decade or so, yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, what would an ideal startup ecosystem be like? Um, for example, what steps must Indonesia take to grow and develop to reach that ideal point? Um, I think for um, any tech ecosystems to 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 really thrive, you need kind of four four pillars, right? Um, obviously, I think we talked about public and sort of private sector buy-ins. I think these two are very critical. Uh, but on top of that. Um, you know, foreign capital, I think, is very important as well, uh, which I think Indonesia has done very well, given the increase in FDI um, over the years, as well as more and more growth funds, um, you know, from, say, Silicon Valley, you know, and other markets have been very active as well. And then the fourth pillar is really the talent, right? So I think if you have those four pillars or, or, or four things firing in all cylinders, I, I think that you know, breeds a very good sort of uh, 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 hunting ground or, or for, for startup ecosystem, right? So I think in, the, in, in how we try to play a role is obviously on the private sector side, um, you know, you know us very well that, you know, we do have quite a few um, global investors that are leaning on us to be that beachhead strategy into Indonesia, right? So I think, you know, for us at Intudo, we take on that early stage risk uh, in Indonesia at the early stage opportunity set. And as these company raises subsequent rounds of capital, that's when we pass the baton. It's kind of like a relay. That's when we pass the baton, um, you know, to these global funds, which have, you know, increased in terms of sort of five x um, in terms of their participation in the market, um, which which I think bodes well for for the ecosystem in Indonesia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but how how does Indonesia balance uh, between innovation and regulation uh, when it comes to the case of uh, entities like OJK? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th I think OJK, uh, OJK, like regulators like OJK, etc. They've done a tremendous job in balancing sort of, uh, you know, allowing startups to have room to innovate, but as well as some control and oversight, right? So I think in the cases of say, you know, peer to peer lending companies, I think you're opening remarks about, you know, those like 1000 you know, peer to peer players, um, you know, closing down and uh, as a result of bad practices and things like that. I think that was a case of, you know, uh, you know, OJK stepping in, um, you know, sort of to, to shut down the ones that have sort of predatory lending practices and things like that. But at the same time, you know, I think they've also constructed programs like sandboxes, where companies do go through, um, you give it time and you give it some room to see what works what doesn't work and if it goes off the rail a little bit you know they, they'll kind of clamp down on you a little bit so i think they've struck a good balance uh, so it's not only just in peer-to-peer -peer, but you saw that a little bit in you know sort of uh, ride hailing right a little bit uh, in the early days and then obviously I, I think i think cryptocurrency and 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 now you know uh i, I think that's getting some traction as well uh, on the regulator side yeah mm. Okay, so I think there's a good segue to, to speak a bit of the role of government 
in developing the funding and investment uh, landscape in Indonesia. Um, so due to the significant risk and unpredictability, established financial institutions are unwilling to support startups sometimes. Um, as a result, we rely a lot on angels and VCs uh, because venture capital funds are sometimes seen as uh, rocket fuel. Uh, so they frequently invest in early stage enterprises, risky bets that are positioned to take off. So in Indonesia, we are seeing stronger participation uh, from our, from both the public and private sector to invest in seed. So like the Indonesian government last year announced a 300 million USD uh, state-owned fund, Merapute Fund, that will invest in Sunicons with a minimum ticket size of 10 million US. And current unicorn entrepreneurs such as Kopi Kenangan established the Kenangan Fund which pulled angel funds to offer big checks of you know, 100,000 USD for pre-seed. So it's also intriguing to watch how established companies are acquiring startups in order to harness their tech. Um, PT Pertamina, an Indonesian oil and gas SOE, launched the Pertamina X Scouts Open Innovation Project in 2021. This project helps energy firms with new tech applications and market expansion. So in that context, you know, what has the Indonesian government really done uh, to encourage better participation from the local private sector to invest in this class? Mm, mm, yeah, I think, um, look, I, I think I think uh, sort of getting back to um, the, the, the public sector and what the government has done. So in addition to what I mentioned about the CVCs um, that are investment arms of, say, telcos and banks, um, which we have partnered with, you know, a variety of them, uh, you know, we, we, and we've partnered very well with uh, a variety of them because of the independence of, of Intudo, right? So I think, you know, whatever companies that we go into together with these CVCs, we do try to, you know, provide something else uh, outside of the ecosystem. For example, we've done investments with a, a CVC of a state-owned bank where I think um, we, it was a, an omni-channel enabler platform and then we were able to immediately access um, the, 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 the variety of SME customers in that bank for example, as well as a telecommunications company, uh, CVC, right? We're able to access their network uh, and, and we play sort of a, a complementary role and provide the private sector support. Now, I think on the Meraputi Fund, um, you know, we're certainly are aware. I, I think, you know, between the five CVCs that are, you know, grouping together to form this fund, I, I think it's a sort of a valiant effort uh, to fill that sort of series B or C gap. Uh, that, that sometimes is, um, you know, in, in a growing uh, tech ecosystem, sometimes the growth stage gap, um, you know, re requires some, some filling in, right? I, I think the Mer Meraputi Fund, um, you know, is, like they have a good effort and a good intent uh, to fill that gap. Uh, and in addition to that, I think um, if you think about sort of the INA, INA fund, right, they've announced so many investments uh, on the tech side, especially with, say, Traveloka, you know, that, that debt financing that they provided. Um, and more recently with um, sort of with, 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 uh, with Mazdar, with the, the Pertamina deal, as well as Toll Roads, a bunch of infrastructure projects. I think that also paved the way for a lot more foreign investments to either co-invest together with uh, INA. And I think that's also the goal. So, and, and then, but I think all this is only made possible because I think several years ago, um, with the, the passing and the implementation of the omnibus law um, uh, that allowed for more, I think, foreign direct investments. I think that turned um, what used to be a negative list into now a positive list. I think there's like a variety of sectors that was negative and now it's positive available for foreign direct investments. The ease of doing business, even, you know, something as simple as like setting up a company, applying for, you know, the, the proper licenses and things like that. I think, um, we, you know, it's removed a lot of red tapes. 
Um, also, I think surrounding labor, you know, the hiring and firing of people um, also allowed for, uh, it, it really paved the way for more FDIs, right, at the end of the day. So I think it's it's not really just one thing, but I think the government's effort on, on, on this multitude of, of areas um, has, has set the stage for, that's why in, in Indonesia is this investment des uh, destination it is today. Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, um, how has the Indonesian government been able to attract foreign capital? Uh, but I think you've mentioned a bit there. But just to expand on that, um, you know, can we talk a little bit on the pain points uh, in, in the startup landscape and how the government has um, tried to address these pain points? Yeah, I, I think on pain points, um, look, in, in any growing sort of ecosystem, right, uh, you will go through stages of uh, sort of experimentation. And, and, the, and the nature of experimentation is that there will be failures from that, right? Um, but but we, we, we actually, we tend to shy away from saying failure. Like, it's kind of like what Michael Jordan said, right? There's, there's no failures. There's only lessons, you know, like, yeah, there's only learnings, right? So I think we certainly have learned a lot over the years, uh, both sort of on, on the government regulators as well as investor side. Um, I, I think in, in markets of uh, downturn uh, or, or, or whatever winter period that sometimes people describe the one that we're in, um, you do see more sort of scars, right, um, from either, you know, bad, um, bad sort of uh, governance uh, in, in, in companies um, or, or, or bad management decisions and things like that. So I think that in the past couple of years that that has really been showing because i think in indonesia's tech ecosystem which really started i think around 2011 2012 right so this we're, we're only like a decade in right um the first maybe eight years has been you know just just gone one way up you know um so i think in in a, in a rising tide situation you know all, all, all boats are lifted right so i think it's only nowadays where in the past couple of years where we're seeing sort of the, the the tide kind of receding um it's like kind of what warren buffett said right you kind of see who's 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 swimming naked you know yeah okay so um we'll, we'll move on to the next talking point um so we've covered on on the government's role let's let's think about external to indonesia so uh we're going to talk a bit about the expansion into other asean countries uh from indonesia so a um, bit of background, considering each ASEAN nation has a very unique culture, uh, it is challenging for all companies to expand into other ASEAN countries. Uh, what worked for Kopi Kenangan and Gojek may not work in other countries where the language is different, uh, but luckily Malaysia has similar culture uh, where the locals can immediately resemble uh, with the brand, can resonate with the brand. And in the case of Kopi Kenangan, Malaysians are coffee lovers. Uh, so it will always be an immediate country for expansion. Um, but that being said, you know, can we actually try to understand a little bit on how uh, we find the correct product market fit in different countries uh, from Indonesia's perspective? Um, so the question is really how important is VC support when it comes to a startup's expansion into a foreign country in, in the ASEAN context, for example? Yeah, yeah. No, I really appreciate, um, I think, your, your remark about, you know, not sort of thinking Southeast Asia as a region, because I think when Intudo started around seven years ago, um, I think our mission was to prove that, look, Southeast Asia is not one region, right? So you can't just, you know, copy and paste what works in one country and expect that to work in another country. So that's why we uh, are the only Indonesia-only fund. And, and we've spent the past, you know, six, seven years trying to prove that, right? But I think um, we are Indonesia only in the sense that we want our portfolio companies to start out in Indonesia 
uh, and we want to capture the opportunity set in Indonesia at the early stage. But once it graduates into like a growth stage, for example, like Zendit, I was just talking to Taufik, like Zendit, for example, who came into Malaysia, you know, with, with, with PayX, right? And, and, and a few other acquisitions in other markets. So once I think um, a company gets to a growth stage where they've defined that product market fit in, a comp- uh, in Indonesia where they've dominated, um, you know, uh, and their product has developed um, sort of a little bit more, um, you know, excellence in terms of execution, then that playbook can be sort of transitioned into other countries like Malaysia, right? But obviously, Zendit is not the only case. I mean, we, we do have other companies, uh, for example, like uh, a digital freight forwarder company that, that we invested called Andalin. Obviously, the nature of that business is that the more international trade routes there are, um, you know, the, 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 the better it is uh, for the business, right? So for that business model, obviously, it is only natural that, you know, they do expand and develop relationship with other trading partners and Malaysia being strategically located sort of you know along along, along the strait uh, together with Singapore um, you know it is a very important hub uh, when it comes to trading so when it comes to that line of business I think it makes a lot of sense um, no different than say um, you know our other portfolio company cargo right which was invested by you know one of the larger groups from Malaysia uh, the, the Air Asia group uh, in teleport I mean for us to have intermodal uh, or different modes of, of logistics, whether it's air freight combined with uh, cargo's main business in Indonesia, which is mid-mile trucking, that, that only makes sense as the business evolves over time, right? So I think we do have many businesses, like I said, that start out in Indonesia. We play the role of that Indonesian partner to help them dominate in country. But once it gets to a certain stage, it makes a lot of sense to come into Malaysia. And not, not only from the sectors that I mentioned, I mean, in, in Islamic financing, for example, actually, I would argue Malaysia is the leader in, in, in Sharia uh, finance and things like that, right? And then Taufik and I was just chatting. I mean, maybe on the asset management side, we have a lot to learn uh, from, from the asset management industry in Malaysia. So it is a very sort of uh, 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 in interdependent relationship, I would say. I think, yes, Indonesia has those huge numbers in terms of market size, growing middle class, everything we read on, on, on whatever reports. But then I, I do think in, in special uh, niche businesses, I, I think there are ways that we can learn from each other as well. Hmm. Okay, yeah, that, that's very, very interesting. Um, but just to circle back um, there seems to be very few success stories of Malaysian startups going into Indonesia so we just want to you know dabble a bit in that uh, subject why do you think this is the case is it due to funding regulatory hurdles such as limitations on foreign shareholding uh, that Indonesia has imposed Uh, how could we reduce this friction to create an effective regional ecosystem yeah I mean I think yeah I I don't think it's too much on um sort of regulation or like like we talked about negative lists and things like that because I think since the passing of the omnibus law actually that list is more of a positive list right now right but I think it may have some it has it has more to do with I think the market acceptance and maybe the, the time of, of when a certain company was coming to Indonesia so uh, I'll give you an example so obviously I think Malaysia with its talent base um, it, it's more sort of B2B and business driven in, in many cases right but in terms of the industry I would argue in a space like, for example, like 
electric vehicles, for example, right? Indonesia, with its vast resources in nickel and things like that, maybe it's more of a player that you could be a little bit more busy with on the upstream side of things, with, with, with battery making and things like that. But Malaysia has also been known to be a hub of assembling or manufacturing auto parts, right? So maybe the way to partner is that maybe Indonesia on, on, the, on the sort of the commodities and the, and the battery side takes care of that in the earlier part of the value chain, but later on partner with a Malaysian partner on sort of uh, on on the downstream side of things, right? So, I, I don't think it's it's it, it's definitely a two way street. It requires, um, I, I think, a lot of G to G and B to B sort of discussions on which sectors that we can learn from each other. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think on the Sharia or the Islamic financing side, there's definitely a lot more learning that that I think we can do. So, if we are to look at an opportunity set in Indonesia uh, along this line for that company to expand, it would be a very natural uh, next step, uh, you know, for Malaysia to be that next market, right? Okay. And conversely, what are the challenges of expanding into Malaysia for Indonesia startups? Uh, just, you know, just to be very candid, just just let us know. Uh, for Indonesia to, yeah. to come to Malaysia, right? Um, look, I, I think, yeah, like I said, so I think we've only... Uh, what 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 I can share is what we learn from our portfolio companies, right? So I think in the case of say Andalin, Cargo, as well as Zendit, right? Uh, they've all come into the Malaysian market via different modes. Um, you know, some you build organically, you know, just set up your operations. Uh, some you 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 do it inorganically via an acquisition, right? Um, but I think obviously to to, to your point earlier. I do think that it's not only just unique to Indonesia and Malaysia, but it's unique to say Thailand, Philippines, uh, Singapore as well, right? All Southeast Asian markets has its own dynamics and nuances in how to operate and how to excel in that market, whether it's as basic as say culture, languages, understanding the government, um, you know, the, the, the families that, that control the economies, etc. So I think it requires um, a, a very sort of uh, customized approach to each country. So it's not just Indonesia finding difficulty or challenges coming into Malaysia. I would say that playbook you need to assess pretty thoroughly as you go into Philippines, as you go into Thailand, Vietnam, it's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. As a side note, uh, we hope Njana fulfills that role for any Indonesian startups coming to Malaysia. Yeah. And, uh, you know, working with you, with Intudo, it's, it's a great pleasure. So, yeah, that's what we're trying to do here at, at the agency. And I hope you see, uh, you know, benefits from our efforts. No, but- for, for sure. And, and, uh, again, just uh, before we started this uh, th- this session, right? I-, I think the the learnings is very much two way street, right? Um, the the sectors that are highlighted, the industries that are highlighted. I think it's something that I think Indonesia could learn a lot from uh, from Malaysia. Um, I think expansion into the wider region. Uh, Malaysia is a very good neighbor uh, for for us in Indonesia. So we, in our very small ways, I know we're not sort of as big as Panjana, but in our very small ways, with our portfolio companies, I hope that we can play that role as your counterpart in Indonesia as well. Before we continue with the interview, here's a quick word from our partner. Are you a high growth startup looking to become Malaysia's next unicorn? Do you want to learn from the best and build relationships with top startup founders in the country? Introducing 100 Sunicorns, the first C-level peer coaching program for technology-only startups in Malaysia. Designed by Proficio and Scale Malaysia in partnership with Benjana Capital and MDAC. This program is your chance to meet and learn from regional and global unicorn founders and VC who can support your next Series A and B round. Plus, you build 
relationship with top 100 startup founders in Malaysia and it's an opportunity you don't want to miss. To qualify, your startup must have raised at least 1 million US dollar or generated 2 million US dollar in revenue over the last 12 months. Application closed on May 20, 2023, so don't wait. Apply now at www.proficio.com. That's P-R-O-F-I-C-E-O for Proficio. By Proficio and Scalp Malaysia, helping to turn your high growth startups into Malaysia's next unicorn. Let's talk about Indonesian startups for a bit. Um, why why do Indonesian startups need to enter into other markets like Malaysia, for example, when the market size is already huge in Indonesia? And if they do decide to expand beyond Indonesia, when is the right time usually? Yeah, I, I think obviously Indonesia has big headline numbers, right? Um, I think everybody goes off the population. We're like one of the largest democracies where, you know, uh, 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 the, the, the economy uh, is very centralized around Java and things like that. But I think with even our own LP base, I think we try to be brutally honest. Actually, we don't think Indonesia is a 280 million population. It is, but like in terms of the market size of your business, your, your TAM and, and things like that, it's not whatever it is times 280 million. You know what I mean? Like we do deep, uh, we, we do dive pretty deeply into um, sort of the, the, the socioeconomic classes uh, of, of the Indonesian market. I mean, you have the force, you know, 4 million with GDP per capita of say, you know, $80,000, right? That's akin to like maybe Singapore or whatever. And then you drop down to the next 50 million, which is maybe $7,000, which is more akin to say Thailand, right? And then you drop down to the next 120 million, uh, which is at 1,500. And then you've got the next hunt with well, the last 100 million, which is at $600, which is more akin to the global poor, right? So I think whatever business that you look at, I think it needs to be on a sort of a facts and circumstances basis where what is your true TAM, right? I would argue for most of our businesses that are either B2C, which we have very few, uh, most of our businesses are more B2B in nature. But even that, I would argue the true market size um, is centralized uh, mainly in Java uh, and mainly in Java Databec. And if it's in Java Databec, which is 24, 25 million, I mean, it's not too far away from 35 million in Malaysia, right? So yes, I think headline numbers are very big, but each business model requires that that lens, you know, you got to peel sort of the onion a little bit then you just can't apply, um, you know, whatever works elsewhere and, 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 and paste that business model into Indonesia and expect the entire 280 million to be a consumer. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I think we're pretty honestly, uh, we're pretty honest about that. And that's why I think, you know, we do have businesses that, like I said, whether it's Islamic financing, logistics, uh, that that uh, digital freight forwarder business, that could very well be, um, you know, Malaysia would make a lot of sense as, as a great trading partner um, for, for, for that line of business. Um, you know, payments, right? Uh, obviously, Zendit has proven a lot of product market fit in the markets that they operate, whether it's Indonesia, you know, Philippines, um, you know, and, and then now Malaysia, right? So once we've defined that true product market fit and solved a lot of pain points for a lot of B2B clients, we would imagine a lot of B2B, well, a lot of B customers uh, in Malaysia would maybe, you know, benefit from a lot of these products as well. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. In in Western countries, um, there is a lot of concern towards big tech's uh, over-influence on the overall economy and whether consumers' interests and privacy are protected. 
um, as more and more startups come out with innovative products. An example being a recent online petition with over 1,100 public signatures calling for a six-month moratorium on further enhancements to open AI. Um, so in that context, do you expect a similar development in this region? And do you think regional unicorns in ASEAN and, and in Indonesia will eventually turn into you know, these so-called monopolies and threaten consumers' interests? Uh, sorry, a bit of a heavy question, but yeah, you know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, no, I think on you know, this whole uh, sort of open AI, you know, chat GPT, et cetera, um, you had a discussion with Bagita about this as well. I mean, that is, um, it, look, it, it's very new, right? First of all, um, it's developing. Um, and 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 the the risks and 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 benefits of of such products and solutions to society to uh, you know consciousness to 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 whatever right I, I think everybody has different take on it as well but I think how that development goes is is something different in how um, a lot of the regional unicorns that operates in a completely different space for example say e-commerce and ride hailing where I think in the developed markets those businesses have proven out um, you know to be to be uh, you know mature businesses and there are examples in how to either regulate or sort of monitor how those businesses grows right so I think whether it's sort of anti-monopoly here and there, I, I don't think that set of risks, um, you know, is, is something unique in Indonesia. We can learn from our counterparts in more developed markets. Mm, okay, cool. Um, moving on to the next uh, talking point, it's on the investment impact of Indonesian startups on the regional economy. So a successful startup has the ability to generate substantial economic impact. Uh, one of the greatest visible impacts on the area economy would be the creation of completely new jobs, um, such as a tokenomics expert position in a crypto company. Uh, the creation of these high-quality jobs also allow us to attract the greatest talents uh, to this part of the world. Uh, this will result in higher productivity and output, thereby resulting in an increase in overall income and tax revenue levels, uh, which will in turn in aid, aid enhance uh, spending power, general quality of life. So on a micro level, higher productivity brought upon by innovation increases corporate earnings and lowers costs. Um, on a macro level, it won't aid not just economic growth, but also attract FDI and stimulate economic activity. So um, startups, no doubt, have the potential to disrupt key economic sectors and improve the overall well-being of society. What are some key trends that you are seeing in Indonesia that we should also be doing in Malaysia? Wow, yeah. Um, look, I mean, I mean, first of all, maybe, maybe I'll preface by saying... Um, you know, we're not we're not a trend based investor uh, in Indonesia. In fact, I think whenever uh, a business model or a trend gets a little bit too hot, um, we tend to shy away um, just because I think it attracts um, a, a, a wrong type of founder. Because some, you know that's when a lot of fake founders try to enter that that space because it's trendy. Uh, we also feel I think a lot of VC funds they use this trapping technique where they announce certain sector will be hot. So that you know, entrepreneurs dive into this industry thinking that funding will be easy, right? So I think maybe I'll just preface that that our investment thesis is a little bit more, um, I, I would say, moat driven uh, than, than than say trend based investing, right? So if you were to ask me what's the next big thing in Indonesia, 
you know, I, I probably maybe there are other VC funds that 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 claim uh, that can claim they can do that better. But for us, I think we're very much a moat-driven uh, investor, right? But for us, I think in Indonesia, um, we are seeing um, some business models that, uh, especially, I think, I think, I think on the SME side, um, not not to say digitalization of SME is is a trend that applies to Malaysia, but what has worked for us in some of our portfolio companies, for example, is say, um, for example, we have this business called Jaguar coffee right where I think um, it is it is a mobile cafe business uh, it empowers um, uh, baristas to become their own entrepreneurs I think that um, that business model you know creates a lot of import, uh, employment opportunity and a lot of entrepreneurs right um, where I, I think they can eventually have a path to own their own electric bike uh, they have a cafe or this cart uh, built into it where they can ride to different locations and serve coffee freshly um, you know at uh, on site right yeah and, I've and, seen and, those in Jakarta uh, right exactly <laughs> it's no, so, amazing yeah. no 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 we're, we're very excited about that business and um, so something like that I think um, will aspire um you know entrepreneurship right um in, in the in the malaysian context i think just as it has been in indonesia um i also think um uh, the, the local eatery space i think we have a business uh called wahyu um that 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 has done um you know has made a lot of impact uh to a lot of these uh, wartak uh, owners in Indonesia, where I think in the beginning, their um, reach has only been on a very hyper local level, just selling, you know, their daily meals to just uh, the, whoever's in that radius, right? But with with the online presence, as well as um, now, I, I think they're pivoting to a business model where they can use their, their kitchen as a way to perform uh, sort of like a ghost kitchen concept where they can make, um, you know, extra income uh, by, by, by cooking food from um, sort of wahi recipes and things like that allows a lot of these um, owners to know to have more income and, and therefore maybe more employment um, you know uh, and have, with, with a cascading effect to you know different people that that serves this business model right so I think you know maybe I, I think those would you know just from my brief um, you know trip over here maybe some of the things that would be a little bit more similar mm. uh, that that may may or may not work uh, you know here, here in Malaysia yeah downstairs we have a uh, we don't call it coffee cut but we have a coffee kanchil kanchil is a, the name of our smallest car in Malaysia uh-huh. they will sell it out of the back of the car see yeah, yeah. And for like yeah. five ringgit Americanos with a drip coffee right so there you go. some similarities there yeah. Uh, but yeah very interesting in Jakarta they're everywhere yeah. they, they ride around they're mobile that's right uh, that's right it's an electric bike and <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay moving on uh, startups need to be able to balance between operational and commercial uh, viability so not all good ideas can eventually make money and i'm sure you see that you know if you do looking at the seed space um, not all good ideas can generate substantial profit uh, returns so have you encountered a startup that you think has very unique value propositions but just couldn't scale enough and eventually tapered off not every business is made for VC funding, you know what I mean. I think, I think there are some business model, and 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 the reason I say that is, as you know, I think VC our fund is subject to a very sort of high bar in terms of uh, expected return uh, that we need to generate for our LPs and therefore, and, and also within a very specific time frame, right? Uh, time period and investment horizon. So given that constraint or, or, or those parameters uh, in a fund, um, it just may not align very well with some business models. You know what I mean? Um, so some business models may, 
um, benefit from a more sort of sector or, or, or maybe uh, uh, expertise uh, focused fund uh, that has maybe a longer time horizon or maybe a lower um, you know expected return profile right so I think maybe like I said maybe I'll, I'll just uh, disclaim that first mm. now I think business model wise we actually from the get-go and you know we're not just saying this because you know because it's trendy to say this now right but everybody is nowadays saying oh yeah you know your business model needs to have a path to profitability you need to focus on margin and things like that. But if you trace back to what we've said ever since fund one, we have always approached investment with that lens, right? So I think, you know, when we think about investment, um, I think we do want to build businesses with a more sustainable business model. And the way we try to give our companies that unfair advantage is to, relish, uh, is to leverage that relationship with over 30 families that we have in Indonesia, um, you know, for the benefit of the startups that we invest in. So that, you know, at early stage, that's why we like a lot of B2B businesses because we can help them shortcut that customer acquisition process and take them to you know our LPs many of them are sort of diversified conglomerates and many of them are you know being run by either third or fourth generation business owners now which are you know a lot more open-minded about how to incorporate technology into um, you know certain part of their value chain or their business process so I think we also act as their their solution to help them you know uh, digitally transform right but at the same time uh, in, in the eyes of the founders that we invest in, we also serve them up with potential partners, potential customers and things like that. So I think it's a very sort of codependent relationship. I think we try to foster a more sort of healthy uh, uh, work environment if we can't apply this to the entire tech ecosystem in Indonesia, but in our very small ways, just within the Intuto portfolio, um, you know, we always strive to find synergies either between our portfolio companies or, um, or, or with our sort of partners uh, in Indonesia. Okay, cool. Thank you. So just to summarize the talking points before we go to some standing and fun personal questions. Um, first of all, we have covered growth and development of the Indonesian startup ecosystem. We've um, explored the role of government in developing the funding and investment landscape in Indonesia. We've talked about expansion into other ASEAN countries. And we've also talked about VC as uh, impact investing uh, in this region. So that's what we've covered over Indonesia. I think now it's just over to you on a, on a VC um, level. Um, could you just give us a bit of tips on... Um, LP management, for example, how do you manage the relationships with Indonesia? What are the dynamics uh, between the different families, etc.? And uh, what's what's your take on that? Yeah, we've been very lucky, to be honest. We, we've been very lucky um, with with our LP base in in all three of our funds. Um, they're all very engaging. Um, they're all um, and, and again, different types of LPs invest in us for different reason, right? Some are either to learn about the market. We um, stay very, very actively engaged with our LPs whenever it's, you know, say market knowledge or they need background checks on someone that they're looking at or they need to understand certain nuances in a, in a, in a specific field. Um, so we actually enjoy sort of engaging with our LPs a lot, um, partly because we also leverage on their expertise in the industry, right? Because I think as a VC, um, unless you're a very sort of subject matter expertise uh, focused VC. For us, we are a country specific VC, but sector wise, we're you know, a little bit agnostic, right? So we do lean on our LPs a lot 
in their experiences and expertise in in different industries, right? And learn about uh, their pain points that they go through uh, in their old line industries. Uh, and then, you know, we in turn, you know, go and source, maybe there's a digital solution to help solve uh, their pain points, right? Whether it is a consumer insights platform that help replace um, their previous vendor, uh, which they're paying heaps, uh, heaps amounts of money, um, you know, for data that's, you know, usually late and very expensive, right? Maybe there's a digital solution to do online surveys with your respondent base that you recruit yourself, and you can turn around data in three to five days that allows these fast moving consumer goods companies to make, um, you know, uh, management decisions in, 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 a, in, a, in a faster manner, right? So it's things like that. We actually learned about the pain points of uh, the, these traditional businesses and therefore went and sourced you know, uh, 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 companies that way and vice versa, right? So that's one way. The other way is that when we meet a founder, you know, our, our channel check is just very bottoms up. You know, we built all, all our business cases and investment cases bottoms up. So only if we bring them to these families and, and, and CEOs and only until they strike a commercial deal with them, then that gives us conviction to move forward with that company, right? So we don't, our investment memos. I, I don't think we try to, you know, copy and paste what we what we see in industry reports and 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 talk about trends and this and that. But I think we try to collect uh, empirical evidence. Uh, you know, that, that that it's really on the ground yeah. um, for us to decipher whether a, a startup's uh, a product truly has product market fit or not. So I think we've enjoyed that engagement with LPs because they also lean on us. Um, you know, for that for that knowledge and 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 digitalization strategy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to go off the cuff a bit. Okay. Um, what, what, how do you manage your biases when you, when you source for deals? You know, given that we rely a lot on LPs and you know, they may have relationships and connections, it's how they refer the deal to you. How do you as a VC manager remove that bias? Do you just purely go all empirical? How, how do you balance that? Yeah, and, and no, this is, uh, I, I think this is our secret sauce. So I think for us, um, we, uh, we, we, we like to tag team a lot on deals. So um, in our organization, um, first of all, our investments team, they're full stack, which means uh, we don't bifurcate between deals team and ops team. Mm. And, um, and, 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 and I think you know, whoever sources the deal, diligences it, collects that empirical evidence and with the channel checks uh, and, and would like to lead most of our rounds. So that board seat, mm. uh, you know, they, they sit on the board together with myself and Eddie, where I think I come from a more uh, hyper-local uh, uh, lens where, you know, these local relationships and local conglomerates, uh, we provide that hyper-local lens. But then Eddie provides that global lens, mm. um, you know, fr from the pers perspective of his experiences and his global lens, right? So I think we combine that hyper-local between myself and Eddie and we're supplemented by either one or two associates on every deal, right? So there is never... Uh, I, you know, I hear of some some GPs. I think some funds they they split deals by GPs. You know, mm. this is like this GP's deal. This is that GP's deal in in Intudo. That's that's never the case. And I think we enjoy this tag teaming approach and and the hyper local plus global approach partly because we realize we have our own personal biases, just mm. like you you um, you know uh, astutely mentioned, um, and and we want. Each, we want to cover each other's blind spots, right? Mm. Uh, sometimes we can carry a lot of emotions, um, you know, going into a deal, but somebody that steps in to cover our blind spot can give a more, I guess, you know, objective opinion, um, you know, about a situation, right? So I think um, we realize that a lot. And, and that's why I think um, for us, um, we, we keep a pretty diverse team uh, mm. for that reason. 
Hmm. Yeah. Well, that satisfied my curiosity. Okay, <laughs> I shall go back to the script. So, <laughs> yeah. We have some standing questions that we ask every guest. Um, uh-huh. So just feel free to just answer this. You know, in a fun way. It's you know we we ask like fun questions uh, like this. So the first one is: if you could invest and start any business or industry, regardless of current market trends, assuming you have all the money in the world, uh, what would it be and why? Uh, this is this is me me personally yeah right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. yeah okay 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 yeah no look I, I think I think um, look I'm I'm very lucky to have Eddie Eddie is my partner so we 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 shoot the breeze a lot and I think you know sometimes we talk about building you know some cash flow positive businesses you know what I mean right is <laughs> red uh, yeah, right uh, I, I think Eddie Eddie wants to um, you know build like a soy sauce business wow. right yeah, and, then, and then whereas for me I, I um, you know I have a sweet tooth so I, I, I like ice cream a lot uh, and, and uh, an ice cream and pizza joint look I know it sounds very silly but like yeah you never know man I mean like yeah. um, there's a place and time for everything right so yeah <laughs> I, I think that might be that's cool man um, what do you consider a must read book or a must listen podcast for those interested in the startup landscape yeah look I mean my 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 mode of learning is uh, I, I like to listen so the po- podcasts work way better for me and to be honest nowadays I just yeah I mean it, it's very bad now I'll try to do better I don't, don't have that much time to read because mm-hmm. um, I have to read like investment memos <laughs> research reports uh, a lot already right but podcast wise I really like um, Acquired, Acquired. Uh, I don't know if you've listened no. to that it's one of the best podcasts I've listened to so they uh, is these two uh, 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 a host mm-hmm. where uh, I think I think they're both venture investors, but every episode they dive very deep into the journey of say uh, a VC fund or mm-hmm. like a company, right? Mm-hmm. So there'd be an episode, for example, on TSMC, right, mm-hmm. or like on you know LVMH, right, or even on Benchmark Capital, which is a fund that I think you know um, both Eddie and I really aspire to, right, with their fund size discipline and things like that, and how they approach uh, their relationship with founders. Right, so I I really enjoy um, acquired a lot. Acquired, okay. yeah, yeah. I, that, that's that's highly recommended. Yeah. Is it on Spotify? It's on Spotify. All yeah, right, it's I'm on Spotify. Check it out. Yeah. our listeners, uh, please check it out too. Thanks, thanks, Patrick. And our last uh, standing question would be: uh, What advice would you offer to aspiring entrepreneurs in Malaysia or ASEAN in general? Yeah, I mean. Sorry, I, I, I'm trying to. No be, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be original here, but I uh, <laughs> look. I, I wanted to say, uh, come on, man. Like you know, follow your passion and all that. But I think enough people say that. No, I like so, that. so so so. Okay, I, I'm gonna try to be original. Honestly, I feel. Um, I, I feel being an entrepreneur is is very, is very hard and it's very lonely. Okay, so maybe this one or maybe two things that I'm about to say, is that you just gotta find a good a good partner okay and and i feel very fortunate for me both uh on and off the court i for example i found my wife you know in, in, in sort of that has helped with my personal life and i found eddie in 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 work life right so i think having a good partner that you can really rely on that um i think eddie and i always say right if you if you close an eyes and and if you close your eyes and fall backwards you know i i know he'll catch me and i know my wife will catch me as well so if you have that true um relationship with with uh with, with that partner um it really doesn't matter on 
you sort of you know follow your passion or whatever like whatever you do you, you'll find a lot of joy I, I just feel if you try to be someone that you're not uh, I know a lot of sort of great mentors and motivational speakers say this all the time but for me I think that journey with a true partner to go through the ups and downs that that will give you most joy so I, I think for me if you if you define success um, early on and 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 it, regardless of what yardstick you measure success by, right? If it's money, it's one thing. But if it's joy, if it's like sort of personal growth, personal development growth, and things like that, then having good partner um, to be with you side by side uh, through the ups and downs, I think that a, at least for me personally, that gives me a lot of joy and and something that I'll never regret. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. very nice. Uh, very nice. Great way to yeah. to end the episode. So uh, we hope you found this episode informative and thought provoking. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us and we will address it in the next episode. Don't forget to tune in next time as we continue our journey to explore the world of VC and bring you expert insights and in-depth discussions. Thank you for listening to the long game. Thank you, Patrick, for being here. Thanks. He, uh, yeah, he did fly all the way from Indonesia, so we're very, very <laughs> pleased to have him here. Until next time, keep playing the long game and stay ahead of the game in the world of venture capital thanks patrick great thanks Harold.